Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Morning on a Monday, the 10th of April. This is Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio. David Gura in New York, Francine Lacqua in London, in for Tom Keene, who is out this week. And joining us now here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios in New York, the founder of High Frequency Economics, Carl Weinberg. Great to have you with us, Carl. And let me start just by asking you uh, to, to, to give us your take on the jobs report we got last week. We're going to be waiting for markets to open, see how investors here are processing what they saw in that report on Friday after they chewed it over over the weekend. Dig past the headlines for us. When you looked at that report, what was of greatest interest to you? Well, good, good morning, David. There's really nothing beyond the headline to, to look at. That 4.5% unemployment rate is the story. The Fed's mandate is t- couched in terms of the unemployment rate. The unemployment rate continues to fall. Our chief economist, U.S. economist at High Frequency Economics, um, Jim O'Sullivan, has been arguing for a long time that the drop in the unemployment rate is real. It's sustainable. It's not a trick of the maths or a change in the labor force participation rate or anything like that. The Fed's now at the point where the unemployment rate rate is where it wants it to be, it's time to move, time for action. There you go. Uh, Let me ask you about the retail sector. We saw a diminishment uh, in jobs in the retail sector. This, what, just adds further color to a sector that's already not, uh, not doing great. Yeah, well, the retail sector has some problems. We're also going to get a soft retail sales report this week, although that's more in value than volume terms. The lower gasoline prices are going to hold down that component of it. But net-net, you know, the economy continues to grow at uh, about a 2% rate, to borrow the language that other people are using this morning. And that seems to be more than enough to keep the unemployment rate falling. That's the policy challenge. Right, but Carl, let's go back to the employment rate that we had, right? And the Fed fund futures are moving on the back of it. So what does it tell us about nervousness on the markets? Do we need, like, the last hike for it to be telegraphed by five to six presidents before the markets make sure that there's a hike next? Well, I think that the market is pretty much tuned into the program at this point, and uh, the market is pretty universally looking for uh, at least two more rate hikes this year, followed by some start to adjustment of the balance sheet. I think that's been pretty clearly telegraphed. I think the message is out there, and I think uh, now it's a question more of execution would be on the preparation stage. If you're right and the Fed is behind the curve, what will that look like? Does it mean that they have to hike a lot more quicker in the second half of the year? Well, you know, that's always the concern, you know, that the Fed coming from behind the curve races to get above the curve, hikes faster than the market expects, and that causes uh, some upset in terms of the economy, maybe a little bit more heavy-footed on the brake pedal than they would like to be. And uh, this uh, traditionally is the problem with uh, the Fed, which uh, is probably the biggest single cause of recessions in the history of, uh, of the economy, that they get going too far out of sync, and then they try to catch up, and they, they hit it a little bit too hard. The Fed chair speaking today uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Let's go back to the speech that she gave in 
Chicago a few weeks ago. She was adamant the Fed was not behind the curve. So, so defend your position, Carl, if you would here. What, what's, what's the argument that you would make that Janet Yellen in this case is wrong? Well, it's her job to say that she's not behind the curve. And, and, and obviously, you know, that's uh, uh, where, 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 you know, uh, her official position is. But you look at the unemployment rate at 4.5 percent. You look at uh, Fed governors saying that neutral is 4.7 and uh, where they want to be uh, for this year is 4.5 and we're there already. I mean, it's just the question of, uh, of the of the facts that they are in March and April where they wanted to be by the end of the year, and uh, something has to be done to keep them from going too far. You looked at those minutes from, from last week, the FOMC minutes from the March meeting, and there was this healthy dialogue about uh, the balance sheet. Were you surprised by that, the degree to which the, the Fed is already entertaining that and really uh, digging its teeth into that? Well, I think that, you know, something, it's time to start thinking about the balance sheet. You know, what's not clear is how to go about it and what the timing should be, what the messaging should be, and what the mechanics of it should be. And that's because we're, we're in unexplored territory. So, uh, yeah, I'd expect there to be a lot of debate about how to get there. I think the end result that everyone has to expect, though, is that the balance sheet is going to come down, and that's going to have both a stock and a flow uh, impact on the markets. Carly, I'll play devil's advocate. So you believe the Fed is behind the curve. It's very unlike me. Um, but what if, you know, they are concerned without saying it's be politically very difficult for say uh, to they're they're concerned about where President Trump takes the U.S. economy. Right. So that we don't really have a tax reform yet. We don't really know what kind of geopolitics world we're living in for the next 12 months. And so that may be one of their main concerns in, in not hiking too soon. Well, I, I think you have a very valid point, which is that there is a lot of uncertainty on the fiscal policy side. So what does a central bank do when it doesn't know what fiscal policy is going to be? And the, 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 the accepted technique for dealing with that is to assume that nothing happens until it does. In other words, that policy remains as written, as stated, in place with no changes until we get a clear change uh, being uh, legislated. So I think that that's the way they're going to move forward with this. Uh, it seems a little bit stodgy from our point of view, but their job is not to forecast the economy. Their job is to uh, keep a lid on the unemployment rate from getting so low that it challenges price stability. So they just have to work right. with what they have. But, Carly, if they don't forecast the economy, then they can't preempt. And, I, I, you know, I understand your point, but at the end of the day, that's not what the Bank of England did when it came to Brexit. Well, you know, they, uh, Mark Carney took a lot of criticism for that also. I think you want to distinguish between forecasting the economy and forecasting fiscal policy. All right? So well, they forecast the economy by assuming no change in fiscal policy, and that way they remain completely apolitical in terms of the, the process that goes behind formulating fiscal policy. And frankly, I think there's some, uh, some merit to that. As far as Mark Carney is concerned, you know, he, uh, I, didn't, I don't think he messaged what he did very clearly. What he did was he prepared the, the, the nation all right, for the worst possible outcome. And that's one style of management. And you could argue that it's the job of a central banker to prevent the worst possible occurrence from occurring. So he had a very specific kind of a shock there. And I think he's viewed the bank as having a very specific task of keeping the worst from occurring. Uh, the Fed doesn't have that. All right? The Fed has concern about inflation in the longer term, but they don't have an immediate dagger hanging over their head where there could be, in particular, an interruption to the functioning of financial markets, which is what um, uh, Governor Carney was looking at in the UK. Oh, let's stick with Governor Carney here for a moment. We had the, the speech by Theresa May, the, the speech by Donald Tusk. Uh, things are in motion here when it comes to the triggering of Article 50. How is, how is Mark Carney watching that unfold from Threadneedle Street? 
Yeah, well, he's uh, Governor Carney has uh, warned the banks to prepare for the most difficult contingency. He wants them to have an action plan in mind so that if something does happen, as things do happen, that they know what they're going to do next and uh, to try to put some kind of control over uh, the situation. This has been uh, both uh, Governor Carney's approach and I think the Bank of England's general approach to the entire Brexit uh, situation. I think it's an interesting effort, and I think it certainly challenges banks to think about hard questions and perhaps even to state and reveal some of their strategies. But at the end of the day, this is going to unfold in probably a way that nobody can anticipate fully, and I think that it's going to be very, very difficult to insulate financial markets from shocks emerging from Brexit, especially if it goes the way that I think it's going to go, which is that it's going to extract a toll on the city in terms of its passporting uh, into Europe. Got some new uh, disappointing consumer data out of the, the UK as well. Help us with this this ongoing debate, this argument over soft data and, and hard data. To, to what degree do you think that soft data sort of portends or, or predicts where the hard data is going to go? Well, there you go, David. You, you hit the nail right on the head, all right? The soft data tell us where we think the hard data are heading. They inform us. They help us generate our forecasts and our expectations for it. But at the end of the day, the hard data are what matter. So the, the purchasing managers' indices for Europe are at a record high. And industrial production is just bopping along near zero, bopping a little bit above it, maybe a percent or two. Or who do you believe? Well, at the end of the day, it's the hard data that tells the story. So I, I inform myself by looking at the soft data. But at the end of the day, I have models of the hard data that I depend on much more to tell me what the economy is doing. Francine Lockway in London, David Gura in New York, Tom Keane off this week. Carl Weinberg sitting in his seat. We won't tell Tom, but he, very <laughs> he's scary, in Tom very Keane's scary. chair here at our 1130 studios. Carl, we were talking about the Fed. I know you're looking at, uh, at, at bond yields as well, looking at correlations and German yields. What, what are you seeing as you look in that space? Well, the, the thing that catches your eye right away are very, very intensely negative yields, both in Germany and in the U.K., and um, it's hard to reconcile that with either appropriate policy or with what the market will continue to sustain. Uh, in Germany, historically, you go back over the last 30 years, and 10-year uh, bond yields tend to run about two and three-quarter percentage points above current inflation, which is about 1.4 percent core inflation we're talking about here. So um, that means bond yields should be around uh, 4 percent at the 10-year mark, and we're looking at 21, 22 basis points. It's obviously some a big disconnect. What could trigger a correction there? Well, the Fed is one thing. There's a huge 90% correlation between bond yields and 10-year bond yields over time. And, of course, the ECB is out of bonds to buy. They're stepping away from the market over the course of this year, and they'll be out of the government bond market by the end of next year. So those are two pretty big things that could uh, give a kick up to the German bond yields toward the direction where I think they have to go. An incredible piece on the Bloomberg here about uh, the quantity of, of negative yielding government bonds, $3 trillion worth of them. Uh, and we're seeing those begin to transition here. What does that mean for the, the U.S. bond market? All of those negative yields are inching toward positive territory. Well, you know, being an old-fashioned kind of guy, I tend to think <laughs> that um, when the Fed is hiking rates and the rest of the world is not, spreads widen in favor of the dollar, and that's dollar positive. So I think that the, the, the place where this uh, widening spread uh, comes into play is that it's a dollar positive, and that's our outlook at high-frequency economics. Grosso modo, we see the dollar continuing to move stronger uh, on most of the major cross rates. Is that not a headache for the Fed? 
Well, you know, it's a tightening of monetary conditions. Again, that's a very old school point of view. It's one that not all central bankers embrace. But the reality of it is, is that if a stronger dollar does restrain exports and restrain GDP growth a little bit, it will do some of the Fed's work for it. So I don't think it's a headache. Again, with the unemployment rate at four and a half percent and dropping like a stone and the economy creating jobs at a one and a half percent yearly rate and the labor force only growing by two thirds of that, um, you know, it's not necessarily unwelcome. Um, Carl, let's go back to the ECB. And when you look at negative rates uh, for some of these uh, bond yields, do you see them less negative in Europe before they become less negative in Japan? Uh, well, Japan, of course, is a special case because there the Bank of Japan can come in and buy the whole thing if they want. They already own 40% of the market and they're committed to putting yields exactly where they want them. So we'll get the yield curve where they want it to be, which is where it is right now. It, it ain't going anywhere. Uh, in Europe, the ECB operates, as, as Mario Draghi says, under institutional constraints, and some of those are legal as well as their own operational parameters. And the biggest one is that they can't hold more than 25% of any single bond that's out there. Now, there are some exceptions in newer bonds, but gross, grosso modo, that's what their constraint is, and they're there. So by the end of this year, they're going to have to stop buying bonds, and that means they're going to lose control of the yield curve. I think uh, that what we should be expecting is higher yields in Europe across the entire yield curve but especially at the longer end. Carl, quick question about uh, trade here before we have to let you go. We had this meeting in Florida last week, President Trump and President Xi uh, meeting trade, I'm sure, was on the agenda. We didn't learn a whole lot uh, about the plan going forward from from that meeting. You have Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross embarking on, a, I think, a 90-day study of, of our trade relationship with China. Uh, what are the next steps when it comes to, to trade? Well, uh, nobody except me seems to be talking this morning about President Xi's commitment to a 100-day program to come up with a way to increase U.S. Ex exports to China. And that's something positive that I didn't expect to come out of this summit. I mean, we've been worried about protectionism, the kinds of things that that clamp down on world trade and slow down the growth of uh, the global economy. And instead, we got a positive proposal from China to boost U.S. exports. That's a, a globalism enhancing, a trade enhancing. It's a positive development. And if something can come of it, if the U.S. can find things that it can sell to China that Chinese want to buy, and probably in technology and capital goods, there's a lot of stuff that they're interested in, then I think we could get some good resolution of the U.S. trade deficit with China, not from cutting off our access to inexpensive goods from China, but rather by improving our access of American exporters to the Chinese market. Carl, thank you so much. Carl Weinberg there, a chief economist at High Frequency Economics. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world that's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. David Gura and Francine Lacqua on Bloomberg Surveillance Day. Tom Keen is off for the week. And uh, suffice to say, political risk well on the minds of investors today after those strikes on a Syrian airstrip last week and news that an aircraft carrier has been diverted uh, in Asia, moving closer toward the Korean Peninsula in light of escalating tensions uh, there. I want to bring in now uh, Thomas Wright. He joins us, director of the Project on International Order and Strategy uh, at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Tom, great to speak with you once again here. Let me ask you, first of all, about who's driving foreign policy uh, in this administration. We've seen the, the schism within the administration playing out over these last few months. You've got uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, a new 
the director of the National Security Council, new National Security Advisor, General H.R. McMaster. Who's calling the, the shots here? Are those shots being called from within the White House or from Foggy Bottom? I think it's, there's no it's, – it's great to be with you um, – there's no clear uh, uh, individual who's sort of uh, first amongst equals uh, thus far. It's really still a struggle between different uh, factions. But I would say that the story of the last month, I think, has been the rise of General H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor. Uh, he came into uh, his position with very few guarantees about staffing or about access to the president. And since he's been in the role, he's really consolidated his position He's managed to push out Steve Bannon as a former member of the National Security Council Principals Committee. Uh, he's managed to appoint a new deputy, uh, uh, Dina Powell, replacing KT McFarland. And he seems to have uh, good, uh, a good rapport uh, with the president. So I think that, uh, that sort of change in the balance of power within the White House will be widely welcomed by America's allies um, around the world, because it shows that the foreign policy, if not quite normal, is becoming a little bit more normal um, than it was at the beginning. You have members of this administration, among them Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and the National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, saying what we saw in Syria was a one-off. In other words, it's not a, uh, something emblematic of a change in strategy uh, in Syria. How difficult is it to maintain that position in light of doing what they in other words, you had this red line. Uh, they they emphasize it here with an indelible marker, making it perhaps redder than it was. Are, are we likely to see more strikes like the one that we saw last week? Um, well, they will. They will certainly be hoping not. I mean, they don't really have a plan for what comes next, but they may actually get away with this in a narrow sense. I mean, if their objective of the strike was to send a message to Assad, don't use chemical weapons. I think it's quite likely that he will sort of take that message on board and won't use chemical weapons again. He may commit, he probably will commit mass atrocities and mass murder with conventional weapons, um, but he may avoid uh, the chemical attacks for one reason, not because he's, uh, you know, he's open to the argument or he's persuaded by uh, a moral position, but because he, I think, does not want to drag Trump into the civil war against him. He wants to uh, have Trump either be neutral or generally supportive of the regime. And uh, the best way to do that is to take the hint and not use chemical weapons again. So they may, they would have to use force again if Assad used chemical weapons again. Otherwise, they would have no credibility whatsoever. Um, but I think they may get away with it in that Assad may uh, just go back to the conventional uh, attacks and you'll sort of return to some sort of status quo pre last week. But, but, Tom, if uh, Assad so-called, you know, falls into line and stops using these chemical attacks, would that not weaken Russia? And so I, my, my question is really, is Donald Trump trying to send a message to Assad or did he on purpose or inadvertently gave a very strong message to Russia? Um, I, I, I think he's, he sent a message, but I don't know if it's a particularly strong message because he they very quickly followed up by saying that they weren't fundamentally changing their serious strategy. I mean, if you listen to Rex Tillerson, Nikki Haley said something sort of different, but Tillerson was saying they're going to remain focused on ISIS, they're going to coordinate with the regime, um, you know, they're not, they're not fundamentally changing their strategy here. And McMaster said something similar. So I, if I was Putin, I would think, you know, yes, he's sort of setting down a red line of chemical weapons usage, but um, they're not actually intervening to try to change the situation on the ground. 
And so I think it's not quite as bad from Moscow's perspective um, as, uh, as some people are making out. Right. But then the encounters or the words between Russia and um, Washington, D.C. were pretty curt, pretty tense, right? I think Rex Tillerson accused Russia and the Kremlin of, of being incompetent. How tense will, will the next meeting be on Wednesday? Uh, yeah, it'll be a very interesting meeting. I mean, I think that the, the, the Russians were clearly uh, opposing uh, the strikes, but one has to look also at what they do in addition to what they say. And I think their actions were relatively limited. I mean, they have many different means of retaliating, and they just uh, really were, seem to be satisfied for the time being with uh, strong words of condemnation and with strengthening Syrian air defense rather than retaliating on the ground or in other ways. So, um, so I think we need to keep uh, an eye on it there. At the meeting on Wednesday, I mean, Syria will be a key part of that. But also, this is the first meeting, really, between a senior Trump official and Russia. And so they, I think, will be trying to find out if there is scope for for an accommodation or for broader cooperation uh, going forward, since Trump has uh, had a very pro-Putin, pro-Russian line. But, of course, allies and uh, key people within the administration will be very wary of that and will be sort of uh, determined to ensure that, uh, you know, that Tillerson sends a message of support for alliances, support for NATO, uh, you know, no fundamental shift on Ukraine. Uh, So quite how um, Moscow may not respond very positively to that. So it could be uh, a tense meeting. We're talking with Thomas Wright, the author of the forthcoming book, All Measures Short of War, the Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. Tom, let me ask you about this G7 meeting in in Tuscany, this meeting of of foreign ministers. Uh, The president, very firmly committed to an America first uh, policy. Is Secretary of State Rex Tillerson expected to carry the water for that? In other words, do you you think that that's going to be the starting point for conversations with, with his contemporaries at that meeting? Well, um, I, I think they will try to send a message of reassurance. I mean, the, the America First rhetoric is very strong. That's clearly the president's preference, uh, certainly was when he came into office. But since then, um, it's been somewhat diluted. There's been these internal contradictions and really a structural incoherence between the America First position and his cabinet. Um, and I think allies will be looking for sort of a shift away from that. So if he sort of reiterated... Um, the America First doctrine and sort of said that the U.S. was not all that committed to Europe, I think that would be pretty alarming. Um, so I hope that he will, he will try to sort of thread the needle and say, you know, President Trump has his uh, position, but he will behave in a responsible way and, you know, is committed to NATO and other alliances. Um, and to some degree, Trump's cabinet have been able to say that, of course, it's the president that has difficulty actually expressing those words himself. And so uh, the summit, this summit may go well, I think. The NATO summit later on in a couple of months mm-hmm. where Trump will be there himself will be much, I think, higher risk because, of course, there's always a chance that Trump may say something and that could be destabilizing or sort of off script. Tom, last question here. We've got about a minute left. Let me ask you about the, the relationship that the president is forging with the, with the leader of Egypt right now. We saw tweets over the weekend saying uh, President Trump believes that uh, President el-Sisi will handle what happened over the weekend, those two bombings, uh, uh, well. I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, how important is it for him to have this relationship? It is a radical departure from the relationship the previous administration had with the Egyptian leadership. Yeah, I mean, they are very, uh, they see eye to eye, you know, CC met Trump during the campaign in New York around the UN General Assembly 
um, he is an extremely tough line on political Islam and, uh, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood. That's very much aligned with where the Trump campaign was and even where the Trump administration is. And so I think they uh, they get along. The problem is that what Sisi is doing in Egypt um, is uh, quite counterproductive in the long term, a failure to reform politically or economically and a very harsh line on legitimate yeah. types of political activity. And so by not putting any pressure on him, I think Trump is storing up sure. problems in the long run. Thomas Wright there of the Brookings Institution, author of All Measures Short of War. This is Bloomberg. Toyota announcing a $1.3 billion investment in an existing U.S. factory in Georgetown, Kentucky this morning. The president of the United States commenting on that, saying it's further evidence that manufacturers are now confident that the economic climate has greatly improved under my administration. With more on this investment, we're joined now uh, by the president of Toyota Motor, that's Will James, and Kentucky's governor, Matt Bevin, Republican uh, Matt Bevin, both joining us from that factory uh, in Kentucky. Great to have both of you with us. And uh, Will James, let me start with you here. Uh, This is something that's been in the works uh, for a long time. What what should we make of the president's statement there? To what extent was this guided, if at all, by the policies of of Donald Trump? Well, this is a program that we started well before, uh, you know, any comments were made towards that. But, you know, basically, for the most part, I think this just uh, solidifies the point that we're in pretty much in alignment. Uh, We're looking for very much the same things. We're looking for jobs and jobs retention and trying to find ways to import the improve the economy and we're pretty pleased with uh, the opportunity to make this 1.33 billion dollar investment to uh, improve our plant improve our overall efficiency and to to bring products like this 2018 Camry uh, you know, to the public Will James, you've you've got uh, the the new economy here under a new president. Let me just ask you about the the, the rhetoric of the president as well. Of course, he's called out Toyota for uh, a one point one billion dollar factory in, in in Mexico for the Corolla a Compact. This is a new reality, isn't it? That you wake up in the morning maybe wondering what, if anything, the president may have tweeted about you and and, and your company. How does that change the way that you do business? You know, really, I think the way we do business is the way we'll continue. We've always looked at things from a long-term point of view. And, uh, you know, this is just one step uh, in that evolution. You know, obviously, earlier this year, Akio Toyota made the commitment that we'll be spending uh, about $10 billion over the next five years. And this is that first uh, move or installment towards that with this investment here in Georgetown, Kentucky, Toyota's largest manufacturing plant in the world and home of the best-selling car in America, the Camry, for the last 15 years running. Governor Bevin, is President Trump good for business in Kentucky? I, he's certainly, I think, going to be good for business uh, in America, period. And the most American-made car, uh, surprising probably to many people, Uh, is the Toyota Camry, not the number one seller in America, which it also happens to be, but the most American-made car in the world is the Toyota Camry made here in Kentucky. So I think an emphasis on manufacturing, an emphasis on engineering and selling highly sophisticated products is good for America. It's good for Kentucky, uh, and Toyota is the embodiment of that. But, Governor, do you worry about tariffs? Do you worry about trade wars? Even if they're minimal, they would significantly hurt your economy. They have the potential to do so. And this is the thing that I take comfort in is this. And I've met with the president on a number of occasions. He is a businessman. He is a very intelligent businessman. He is a man who understands global business. He understands uh, global commerce. 
And I would encourage people to look very much at the things that he does, uh, and not to disregard that which he says, but he is known for intentionally creating dialogue through things that he writes or things that he says to start discussion that ultimately results in better outcomes. And I think that's healthy. I think it's very cathartic. And I think at the end of the day, he is very aware of the fact that so many products made in this country uh, that may be owned by foreign uh, headquartered companies are a significant contributor to our economy. Uh, and he is not going to quickly uh, upset that uh, for lack of, of information. Uh, Mr. Will James, I spoke to uh, Takeshi Ushamada, the chairman of Toyota Motors in Davos, and we had a quite a lengthy conversation. This was a couple of weeks after uh, that famous tweet by President Trump. Do you feel in any way intimidated, actually, by President Trump? And are you concerned about tariffs impacting Toyota? Well, I think I think there's certainly some some anxiety around the the concept of the border adjustment tax, for example. You know, the early estimates suggest that a border adjustment tax might add anywhere from two thousand to twenty five hundred dollars on the cost of a vehicle. And for the most American made Camry with the highest American made content, seventy five percent, we estimate maybe a thousand dollars on top of that. So there's concern about what that may do. Uh, to the industry in terms of sales when we're passing those costs on to the consumers. We're talking with Will James, the president of Toyota Motor in Kentucky, Governor Matt Bevin. Uh, Will James, let me just ask you about your message to the president about manufacturing. We see this investment. We see the sort of high-tech manufacturing that Toyota is doing in, in Kentucky. Uh, the president talks a lot about manufacturing. What, what nuance would you suggest he add to that message in, in light of how your company approaches manufacturing in the U.S.? I'll just generally say that I think, uh, you know, manufacturing is, is moving at a very, very good pace, a very rapid pace towards the future. Everybody's thinking forward. We certainly are trying to show that through the investments that we're making here in this plant. This new TNGA uh, program that we have the uh, opportunity to be the first one to introduce is going to revolutionize this plant. It's actually going to, you know, make modifications from the, from the beginning and stamping all the way through to the assembly plant. That's why the investment is, is so significant. But it streamlines our operation. It modernizes our, our equipment. It provides much more flexibility for our plant to provide us to be able to bring in even different products or, or more products into, into this site. So I think that's what manufacturing is all about. It's not just about building a product today, but it's also planning for and preparing yourselves to be able to build you know, even better products going, going forward. So we're pretty excited about it, and we think we're fairly aligned with, uh, with the president's thinking in that regard. Governor Bevin, I want to get your thoughts on that as, as well, sort of what, what kind of manufacturing you'd like to see in Kentucky and, and maybe what you'd like the president to know about the manufacturing environment uh, in Kentucky, but also go a bit broader if, if, if I could. Uh, Will James talking about sort of the, the forward-lookingness of, of this decision. When you hear the president talking about coal, for instance, uh, is the coal industry in Kentucky going to look uh, the same as it, as it used to look in Kentucky? Well, I mean, to the latter point, of course, uh, nothing looks the same in the future as it does even currently or that it did in the past. Specifically to uh, my vision for the future, it's been said often enough that without vision, the people will perish. I think the same is very true for an economy, for a state, for a nation. And in Kentucky, it is my vision that we become the engineering and manufacturing hub of North America. 
that bar no other state, uh, that there is literally nowhere else that people would think of as the preeminent place to engineer and manufacture products of the highest degree of quality. Toyota is a good example of that. And indeed, uh, Kentucky is the third largest auto producer in America. We are the second largest producer of advanced aviation-related components. So already it exists, and yet to a degree that much of the world is not even yet aware of. And so my focus, as I look to the future, is what can we do from a workforce development standpoint, from an education standpoint, from an, a tax incentive standpoint, and by incentive I mean what kind of a tax environment, what kind of a legal environment, right. what can we do to cut regulation, what can we do overall to make Kentucky the most attractive place for manufacturers to come and produce their products for the 21st century. But Governor, how do you do that? And again, do you feel displaced by globalization or do you feel displaced by innovation? And depending on the answer to that, you'd have very uh, different qualities in terms of manufacturing lines. No, I'm encouraged by globalization. I'm incentivized by it. It's not even remotely a threat. It's an incredible opportunity. Kentucky is just one of 50 states. America is just one of 200 and some odd countries. So the reality is from here in Kentucky, we can touch the world. We have the world's logistical shipping hubs of UPS and DHL and Amazon now building their world shipping hub here. So we literally have the ability to send products made in Kentucky to every single corner of the world overnight. And so for us, there is incredible upside opportunity. Things change. Yes, you asked earlier about the coal industry. There are fewer people working in the coal industry today than there were uh, even 10 years ago. There's literally one-third as many. And while some of those jobs will come back, some of those jobs will morph into other opportunities. And that is actually uh, a good thing for Kentucky, for looking to the future, not relying entirely on exactly what we've been in the past. Governor, thank you so much. The Kentucky governor there, Matt Bevin, and the Toyota Motor president, Will James, on, of course, his billion-dollar investment. President Trump has been tweeting about it quite a lot, so I urge everyone to go and check out uh, Twitter, maybe the one thing <laughs> that keeps it uh, alive. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.